Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Immigrants! That's how they do, you know, just drive around listening to raps and shooting all the jobs. Look, Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, for the first time that I can remember anyway, people paid as much attention to the women's Final Four as they did to the men's. Is patriarchy over? <laughs> did it, So uh, I didn't see the game, Yeah. but my understanding is that uh, all the attention was just because of the... Uh, the, the racial tension? <laughs> well, so uh, the racial tension stems, I think, from the fact that Caitlin Clark Caitlin from Clark. I- Iowa. So my brother texted me, like, you got to watch this. This was in the final four, the semifinal game. Like, you got to watch Caitlin Clark. And I couldn't tell if he was kidding or not. Because he <laughs> <laughs> was just fucking with you. And my brother will do that sometimes where, like, I'm not sure what's a joke and what's not. And so for the first, like, half, couldn't tell if he was kidding. And then finally I realized he was. And then I went on to it and watched her. And she was kind of amazing, you know? He wasn't kidding. or He, he wasn't. wasn't kidding. He yeah, was like, yeah. watch this. She's, like, remarkable. Yeah, you know, right. she's like Steph Curry. So then they get to the finals. And now all the, every bit of attention is on Caitlin Clark. And then meanwhile, LSU just, like, kills them in in the game and then that angel reese at the end is taunting caitlin clark which i loved and it was just a lot of drama you know like uh it's great you know i think it's it's probably one of the best things to happen to women's sports just in general like that it got that many people talking and like like i love that caitlin clark was like i like shut up like that was fine Right, like, th- and I love that Angel Reese didn't apologize. Like, she yeah. never said like she, I was yeah. the heat of the moment. She was like, "Fuck that, <laughs> fuck that yeah. white girl," you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they're just competitors, right? Yeah. Like, they're at a like extreme level competitors. So, like, that's if that's all that happens, you know, Jesus, like, no, that's, that's great. like that's just great. That's getting people who probably swore their whole lives they wouldn't care about women's basketball to actually care about. But did, did you, you see hear that, that like, Jill Biden? Yeah, that's did what you, I was going to say. Yeah. That's what you're going to say. Yeah, good, good for them for turning that shit down. Uh, like, that just seemed weird. Uh, we, we'd also like to have the white team uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, come to How the white, like, even though they lost. So we'll have the white team, you know. It's so racially, <laughs> racially charged. There's just no denying it. Like, it's so obvious. 
you know? Yeah. Um, because Caitlin Clark was doing that shit, apparently. Like, she was doing exactly totally. the same, like, stuff. You can't see me, you yeah. know, like, that was the, uh, no, she was. And yeah, so, so for all the anti-woke who think that race isn't a thing, like, come on, tell me that that wasn't a thing. Tell me that Caitlin Clark isn't the face of white supremacy. <laughs> Does Boston have a WNBA team? Because I'm sure she's headed there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't know. <laughs> we may or we may not. All right, so we are today going to be talking about William James's chapter on mysticism from his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, in the second segment. It's uh, a chapter that I loved and that was recommended to us originally by Fareed Anvari. Um, Good guy. Good guy, yeah. But first, we put out a call on Twitter. We wanted to do another conceptual analysis and um by the way that call on twitter yielded so many responses that i feel like we have we just have like a a whole bunch of ideas for future episodes Mm -hmm. although they have to start with the letter c (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i don't know like what the finalists were i i thought based would be good for our legion of conservative listeners (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought basic might be good, but that didn't. Uh, I think somebody put out a poll, and I don't yeah. think it did very well. Uh, what did win was something I didn't care to <laughs> discuss. W- did woke win? <laughs> yeah, woke won. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, a lot of people. Like, and like you know what that is, and it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I don't even. That's at this point, it's like I don't think even like highly technical, sharp, analytic philosophers like us could really be able to <laughs> carve out. Uh, I had the necessary, but it, but I couldn't get to the sufficient. <laughs> I know it makes you go broke, but I, that's all I know, really. Um, so anyway, we settled on something that you wanted, and initially I resisted, creepy, and now I'm I'm, I'm converted. I think it's a good idea. I, I th- the reason the thing that convinced me was that the other two concepts that we've done, corny and cringe, also start with C. Yeah, <laughs> and so, so we're working through the C's. I think we're just working our way towards cunt. <laughs> That's why we've been watching Deadwood for so long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, creepiness. Yeah. All right. So, so you told me that you were going to work out a theory of creepiness. This was all this afternoon. <laughs> when we decided, yeah. Do you have you come to present your overarching theory, exhaustive, uh, um, authoritative theory of what is creepy? Well, like Socrates, I think these things have to be worked out in dialogue, um, and I can't just give you the theory. Um, um, We have to engage in the elenchus, elenchus. I I don't know how to pronounce any of those words. Um, But I have some questions. Well, so I do have some thoughts, but I have some questions to chart out the territory, at least. Do you think creepy is like a primary or secondary quality? (laughs) What's the distinction? Secondary quality is like colors where it also depends on the observer and the Mm, subjective ah, uh, perception Uh, of the observer. And primary quality is something that doesn't depend on the observer. So I'm going to say that it's a secondary quality. uh, Yeah, yeah. I feel like it has to be. Yeah. Uh, Aside from maybe a jokey response to like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Second question, is creepy a thick concept? Oh, I think it kind of is. I do um, too. And 
So Wait, say it, what it is. Say what a thick concept is. Oh God. <laughs> like in my head, I envision like it, a thick concept is one that branches that has like a lot of branches to other things. Like it's a deeper concept. It's one that like is less surface. Yeah. Oh, that's not my understanding. My understanding is a thick wrong. concept has um, they're evaluative, and, but there are some facts about them. Like uh, courage uh, definitely depends on our evaluations of somebody, but there are also certain facts that you have to have. Okay. Um, I feel like we actually even discussed this in one of the papers. <laughs> yeah. In other words, when you call it something, you're also in part making evaluative statements and you're in part making uh, uh, a factual okay. statement uh, as well. <clears throat> yeah. Then definitely thick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, now, the word creepy is used to describe um, many things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is, even if it's just a fuzzy concept, do you think that there is a unifying, uh, there is a commonality to the ways it, when we, yeah. like in modern parlance? Uh, okay, here's my shot at okay. talking about the commonality. I think creepiness uh, is the sense that something is either dangerous, like threatening, or off-putting in some way, or just off, but without knowing exactly what the source of that is, mm -hmm. right? Like what the source of the threat or danger or just off offness is. Yeah. Um, you know, I think once this, you have a definite sense of the source of the, of the thing, then it's not creepy anymore. It's something else. Like a tiger isn't creepy. We know right. why a tiger is. Uh, but like these cars that drive around my neighborhood at night that are, are creepy because like I know there's something fucked up about this or it feels like that, Wait, but I can't the, put my finger on it. Like, What are the cars that you're referring to? You're not talking about like Google Maps cars. You're talking about like little remote control cars. Well, no, they're like cars, but they're and and sometimes they even have people in them. But they're just driving around, making these like whoosh noises. And like, I just took my dog last night for for a walk, and they were all over the place. But the thing that's creepy about it, also, just why are there these cars? They, they just go around the blocks, you know, mm -hmm. like they just do figure eights around the uh, around the block. Um, the thing that's creepy about it is that nobody talks about it. Like only my daughter and I talk about it. Only Eliza and I talk about it. Every time I bring it up to somebody else, like the subject gets changed right away somehow. And, and even like I, talk, so I was thinking this, I rarely talk about it. This is the first time I've brought it up, right? Yeah. But like a lot of times yeah. I've wanted to talk about it and I say, it just feels like I say something else. Like in Jonathan Strange and Mr. <laughs> Norell, when I'm, uh, which I'm reading right now, whenever like the people under the spell would try to tell someone else, they would find themselves saying something completely different, you know, like a long just description of some war from like the 1700s or something, you know. Maybe you and Liza are the only ones who actually see them and this is just like people being like, ah, oh, quick, change the subject. To, yeah, I was talking to Eliza yesterday, as and she kind of suggested that that this is, and and now it's like they made it too obvious too. <laughs> so it's just like somebody's going to lose their job, uh, whoever's like creating this. If you videotape simulation. them with your phone, if you videotape, listen to me. If yeah. you record them with your phone and then you look back at the footage, are they there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, probably, if I had to guess, probably not. Anyway, but like if I found out that they, you know, some just depressing like. 
uh, yeah, it's Google Maps, like some sort of depressing capitalist explanation <laughs> for like why they're doing this, I would, it, they wouldn't be creepy to me anymore, but they would still, I feel like, have this kind right. of property of creepiness just because of the fact that they're driving around it seemingly aimlessly and they emit this noise of like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That the aimlessness is, is like distressing. Yeah. Um, uh, did you, when you uh, were growing up, remember when we had to get our conspiracy theories just from like the older kid in the neighborhood? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you ever get like, have somebody tell you about black helicopters, you know, like flying around? No. So uh, I remember getting told that there were black helicopters, they were unmarked and they were like, FEMA, but this is before Katrina. This is before we knew that FEMA was just like a joke. <laughs> like people uh, used to say that these black helicopters were like secret government, like FEMA choppers that were uh, either surveilling or like on some covert shit against the citizenry. And so if you ever like saw a black helicopter, then you would just get this like creepy feeling. Or, oh, you know, you'd be like, oh, well, it's true. There are no markings on that. Like, so yeah. there's something about just there. there is that ambiguity that, that just unknowable what's going on yeah um, or or unknown at least unknown. it might yeah, be knowable yeah. but right. you yes. don't know it. right yeah you're right that if you know it then it takes a lot of that away um yeah i uh i agree so i like in giving this some thought um i think that there is a component of so there's the unknown and there's the vague threat because you're right like if it's not a dis like a, a threat that you know exactly what it's about is something that you'd be afraid of not creeped out by um i also think that there happens to be this is not uh, neither necessary nor sufficient but it seems like a theme in a lot of the things that we describe as creepy is something about being watched there is like a sort of mm. like agent detection thing going on where and i'll give you an example so so when we say um the first few times you ever got like a personalized ad on your gmail where it said something that was really relevant to what you had just written mm. that's creepy because you're like wait someone was is somebody watching this like is yeah. somebody actually like paying attention <clears throat> and so they're them kind of revealing their hand that something is being recorded all of a sudden makes you think like, am I just scratching the surface of, uh, do they know everything that I'm saying or doing? Yeah. And there's, there's um, a creepy analogy that I have to like, so whenever tech companies are said to be creepy, I think it often involves <clears throat> that they are surreptitiously recording stuff. Yeah, about surveilling you. us. Yeah. yeah. But there is also this, this, the analog in just regular old human, well, not regular, but human interactions is, the thought to me that you might be like, I'm sitting here in my office, it's kind of dusk, right? If yeah. I'd been sitting here, I can see outside my window, and all of a sudden I turned and there was just a face pressed up against my window that had been watching me <laughs> like yeah. this whole time, that would creep me the hell out. Because for that split moment, you're like, what? who is watching me? Like, what is going on? Um, yeah. And so I, I, I have this feeling that there is something about you don't know why they're watching. You don't yeah. may not even know that they're watching, but you get a whiff that maybe they're watching and maybe that watching has something to do with 
some ill intentions that they might have toward you. That's the cars. Like, that's <clears throat> yeah. exactly the cars. Is like, it feels like they're watching the neighborhood and that they have some kind of plan. Like, we're in phase <laughs> one of the plan, you know? But it doesn't have to be that elaborate. It can, like, or the, or the helicopters. Because uh, you're right that somebody on the pressing the face against the window, or even if, like, you learned that somehow, like, you thought the camera was off for <laughs> <Yeah>. your <laughs> Zoom right. thing, but it isn't. And then you just learned that I was just, like, watching yes. you in that room. That's, uh, that would be really yeah. creepy. And yeah. there, there is... That's that reminds me of this other thing that that there is something about the asymmetry of it that's especially distressing. And so another example that I thought of is um, suppose that somebody were to come up to you like at a conference and they just started telling you things about yourself that were like pretty private. You'd be yeah. freaked out, right? If they just yeah. started telling you like pretty intimate details and maybe at some point you would realize Oh no, all of this stuff is stuff that I've said on the podcast over the years. So that's where they got it. Yeah. Then maybe you'd be like, oh, okay. But then not knowing where all that came from would yeah. just freak you out. Yeah. Probably you more than me when it comes <laughs> to that, but still, yes. Yeah. But I but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to so the other time that creepy comes up a lot is with old people. Um, and I'm trying to think if like your idea can works into that but there is something creepy about well just old people in general but especially <laughs> if old people seem to have something either sexual or possibly yeah. violent on their mind uh but certain but again if you know exactly like if if there's a creepy guy and you just learn that yeah. they're kind of a serial sexual harasser that always hit on people you know like always hit on like 19 year olds well then you're like okay he's not creepy anymore he's just kind of a scumbag yeah but like if you just get the like you said the whiff the yeah. whiff that they're and, and maybe part of that the the reason they give off the whiff is because they look at people you yeah know, I think in, exactly in, in weird ways where it's like why are you watch staring at me like yeah. that you know yeah um, <laughs> yeah so, getting stared at I was gonna say like to me it seems less old people and more like a particular kind of guy thing um, like there is a kind of guy that seems creepy no matter the age and yeah. they're like. They're often like trying to present as nice, but there is something a little bit off yeah, with their off. presentation. You and, and you can't, you don't know what it is, but it gives yeah. you the, like, uh, it makes your skin crawl a little bit, yeah. you know? Yeah. But if they're just like a loud mouth sexual harasser who, who just said like is, then it's just a different thing. Yeah. It's just. You've got to cut that too. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, so yeah, I but I I think you're right that it's men, but I I don't think it's I think it's men because men are more likely to be yes. kind of sexual. Right. But if you do have this older woman who's acting kind like that, it can also be creepy. And even if when they're doing it with each other, and I know I'm headed <laughs> in this direction too, but there is like in the movie X, did you see the movie X? Kind of no. a horror movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, that Mia Goth is in it. Mm -hmm. um, you told me about it, yeah. 
you know, one of the scenes is just these two old people <laughs> having sex. And <laughs> just that. I mean, there's other stuff that makes it, but just that is, uh, it gives off this kind of creepy vibe. So that it has its, uh, you know, like I've, I'm surprised you haven't brought in the quality of disgust because it does seem like creepiness has some overlap with like the creepiness judgment and the, uh, disgust judgment. There's a little bit of a, you know, the Venn diagram has some overlap. There, yeah. But. Yeah. I think it's probably because when I think about prototypical disgusting things, it's too, there's too much um, kind of certainty involved. Like it's just like a, like a putrid meat or something. I think this is independent from the thing that I was saying about, about being watched too. Examples like, um, remember those toys in Toy Story, like the the mean kid has like oh, these toys yeah. that are like fucked up, yeah. like a doll's head on like a spider like body. Those are I might great. be getting it yeah. wrong. Yeah, those are creepy. And I think it's, there is something about the offness that these are normal things that have been changed in some way. And I think maybe that disgust for some things is like something looks like a normal human, but something is off. Yeah. Like that might be creep, creepy inducing, creepy, um, creepy feeling inducing or something. Yeah. yeah. And that's so that's such a good example because they, they seem like terrifying and weird and creepy. And if you watch it with your kid, uh, you know, your kid's going to be scared of them. But <laughs> then when you learn exactly why they're, yeah. you know, why they are the way they are because of the kid doing that to them and they lose it and they become yeah. kind of heroes. Right. Totally. You know? Yeah. They're, they're just like a bunch of misfit toys that are like yeah. on an adventure. Yeah. yeah. There is some overlap with the Uncanny Valley stuff too, where mm -hmm. um, when, so, so the theory goes, the, as, as a representation of a human gets closer and closer in approximation to a real human, all of a sudden, right before you get a dip, because you can tell that something's off. I guess this has to do with the uncertainty. You can tell that there's something off about this representation, but you can't really say what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and and right. so like particular kinds of animation or those like real life robots that are modeled after another human being. Yeah. And like side yeah. by side. Like what? Yeah. Their eyes are dead, you know? <laughs> And that's something that movies can get right, but often don't, uh, how to strike that balance. Like you can use Uncanny Valley to your advantage if you're trying to give off that vibe, but because yeah. it's very close to accurate, but not accurate, it's like sometimes they're just trying to, to make it seem like it's the real thing right, and they right. end up producing the exact opposite effect, which is you, you find it repellent in yeah. some way. It's like yeah. the, the well-known example of the creep, the uncanny Valley is the polar express movie where they were really trying to like capture, do motion capture and make their animation really human. But it just, <laughs> it was yeah. just off by something where you're just like, Oh, weird. Now, even that is like, like I, I would take over just the CGI stuff because the CGI yeah. isn't creepy and isn't real. It's just like, chintzy, janky. Yeah. Janky. Yeah, yeah. That was a good suggestion that somebody <laughs> gave. Janky. But I don't totally know what it means, but I feel like I intuit what it means. It means like fucked up in some way. It's you know, just like, like a, yeah, it's off. It's like a jerry rigged, yeah. like it's a little, it's a little off. Um, but not creepy. It's not, not off creepy. in the way that creepy no, is off. No. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a complete aside, but I was watching a video on why those those effects in the, all those like Marvel movies seem off. And it really is 
that the lighting can never be quite right. Like some of those scenes with green screens um, that are supposed to be outdoors, the light source can never, it just, it's just never right. It's, it's like lit too evenly and it just, there's something about it that our eyes know is wrong. Yeah. And, uh, but we, you know, most of us can't tell that it is. The example that they were showing of when it's done right is Denis Villeneuve's. Um, I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. Cause that, he actually he, uses. He knows how to do it. Yeah. He actually will try to get real light in there, like from outdoors and, and combine that with the CG so that you get all these real effects. Um, yeah. I was thinking Dune, Blade Runner 2049. Oh, I just watched that again. It's so it's, good. It's so good. It's, it's so good. really underrated. It's so, like. I was about to say, like, people don't talk about it enough. And I think no. when I first watched it, I think that there was just something about it that I was like, well, it's, I'm just constantly thinking about the original Blade Runner and not able yeah. to appreciate it for its own thing. And now yeah. that I watched it again, I was like, this is better. <laughs> I honestly, like, that's uh, blasphemy and uh, I'll yeah. get kicked off Letterboxd probably <laughs> for even, like, suggest. But I think it's a conversation because yeah. it's such, it's unlike Dune, which I liked but I didn't really care about. Like, yeah. I feel like there's a good kind of self-contained story, but man, seeing that in IMAX, he has such a good way of conveying space. Oh, like the helicopters God. coming yeah. in, in arrival to uh, first yeah. look at the ship. Like he, he gives a sense of like these big spaces and uh, you know, yes. these distances the and he shows yeah, yeah. the vastness of it. He's really, nobody can do that like he can. Yeah, in 2049, there, you know, in the abandoned city, there are these huge statues like of people like just mm -hmm. crouched mm -hmm. over. It really mm -hmm. reminded me of Piranesi, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hadn't read it. I got to go back and look at that. That's yeah. good. That's yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, anything else to say about creepy? Don't, uh, yeah, just don't be creepy. Like that's don't just, be creepy. It's very easy. <laughs> don't uh, press your don't press your nose against my window at night. Well, uh, another C down. I don't know. I think we <laughs> that's CR. There's no you know CS CT. The next thing is CU. So <laughs> Czechoslovakia. Cy Young. Uh, we'll be right back to talk about mysticism. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, it's my firm belief that therapy is a method to achieve self-discovery, but in particular, I think that it is a good method to avoid self-deception. Finding a therapist who you can build a relationship with and who will be honest with you about, let's be honest, things that you lie to yourself about, things that might be holding you back because you're unwilling to face them, features of your own character, that can be a pretty daunting thing. But in the context of a therapeutic relationship, I think it's one of the safest, best places to achieve that kind of insight into yourself. Of course, it's not all about avoiding self-deception. Perhaps you're struggling from anxiety or depression or excessive anger, or maybe you're just having insomnia and need somebody who's trained in the right kind of therapy to help you with those specific problems. But I think by and large, treating therapy is an opportunity to grow and using a therapist to provide that kind of safe relationship in which you can grow is one of the biggest benefits of therapy in general. So if you're thinking about trying therapy, why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if for some reason you're not happy with who you were assigned. So why don't you go ahead and discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BBW today 
and get 10% off of your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who reach out to us, get in touch with us, participate in some way in the Very Bad Wizards community. Um, if you would like to reach out to us over email, we read all the emails and we treasure these emails that we've been getting and really have gotten for years and years and years. And it's just awesome. You can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at peas or at Tamler or at very bad wizards. You can follow us on Facebook or like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and you can also join the thriving Reddit community. Uh, fairly Thro- big. and Throbbing. Th- the throbbing. throbbing <laughs> pulsating. Um, uh, Reddit community. And uh, yeah, there's all sorts of good stuff that goes on uh, over there. Um, and you can give us a five-star review on, uh, on Apple podcast that would help, um, other so like people av- average it out a little bit more. Uh, maybe <laughs> just try to average it out. There's few people who have vendettas again. Like, who do you think? Like, who's behind this? I don't know. There's people who who just like listen to the opening segment and they're like, when are they going to talk about philosophy? When are they going to talk about? <laughs> I think it's partially examined life. Like they're just like you know, you probably pay like a hundred dollars to that would be brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's the, it is flux. the Russians for sure. For sure. It's the, <laughs> it's Russians. the Russians, definitely. <laughs> That's why Hillary lost. Uh, <laughs> so you can uh yeah. Uh so that would be really nice if you would give us uh, a review on on uh, Apple Podcasts and follow me on Letterbox. I am trying oh, yeah. to commit myself to being on there more often. To watching more movies. To watching more movies. Um, yeah, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, we always appreciate that. You can go to our Very Bad Wizards support page and you can see all the ways uh, that you can support us there. You could donate to us uh, one time or recurring on PayPal. You can buy swag, t-shirts, uh, mugs, uh, baby hoodies, ba- baby thingies, yeah. <laughs> onesies, onesies. Yeah, no, they onesies. don't sell no adult onesies, but we're, yeah. we'll work on that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's in the works for sure. <laughs> and uh, and you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters, um, and get not just the the moral glow of supporting us, but you'll also get a bunch a of radiance. Stuff. 
You get the ratings. You'll you also get uh, a, a whole bunch of stuff at one dollar and up per episode. You'd get uh, ad free all of our episodes ad free, and you get access to my collection of beats six six collections of beats. At two dollars and up, you get access to all our bonus content. So we have a big back catalog of bonus content, including the ambulators. The ambulators. Uh, and at $5 and up, you get all that. Plus you get to vote on an episode topic, uh, that we do a couple times a year and you get access to our brothers Karamazov series, uh, some of my intro psych videos and a couple of Tamler's videos on the Plato Plato's symposium. And we got to convince Tamler to record more lectures. Yeah, I would like to. Yeah. And then uh, finally, at $10 and up, you get everything, including you get to ask us a question once a month on the Ask Us Anything Very Bad Wizards. You'll get the video of us answering your question that you asked. And at $2 and up, everybody gets the audio to those questions. But $10 and up, you get to be the question asker. To see the videos. (laughs) You get to see the awkward, unedited videos. Yeah. So thank you to everybody for for all your support. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Let's talk about William James and his chapter on mysticism from varieties of religious experience, his collection of lectures that he published in 1901 and 1902, correct? Yeah. Man, I loved it. This is one of my favorites that we've just read in a long time. Uh, it is a it's a very Tamler nut busting uh, kind of chapter. <laughs> I also think like it was the easiest read of any James thing mm, that we've yeah. done. I feel um, like it clarified certain things for me um, in terms of my own experience, and I love the epistemological position that it kind of charts out at the end of the chapter. I like that too. That describes my position better than I can describe it. Um, I I also just think like we've talked about this before, but William James is like this living rebuke to us all, you know, (laughs) I I mean, I guess he's not living, but uh, he's a dead rebuke to to all of us. Wait, in what sense? Uh, To psychologists and philosophers. I mean, like he's like, how is it possible that he can pack so much insight into these essays and books and chapters that are just, it's just him reflecting and quoting people and and organizing his thoughts and his attention and focus on a particular topic. And, you know, he, d- he does it without a specific mes- methodology. He, this is one of the last people who does philosophy and maybe psychology uh, the way it ought to be done. And he does it so well. It's impressive. And the temptation I always have out of defensiveness is to say, well, there was just less to know, right? Now we have like, you know, hyper expertise where we can't be as broad, but I don't actually think that's true because (laughs) when you look at how much he clearly has read, like in the principles just across those two volumes, the amount of scholarship that he does, I mean, sure, obviously there was a lot less, but it's not as if he didn't delve deep into a whole bunch of different areas in a way that even if I were living back then, there's just no way. There also was not this culture of hyper-specialization that there is now. And so he could do this. 
You know, yeah. we talked about this with Nagel to some degree. Like somehow he gets to just float above all the, you know, cite right. this person, cite that person. And he just somehow gets to just write about the absurd with the, right. and mention right. Camus and that's it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. It's probably to the chagrin of everybody who's written in that field, but still. Whatever. Like too yeah. bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I feel the same way. And yeah, I mean... James, this is the thing is James is not a, he's not really doing a floodlight kind of thing. Like he's citing a whole bunch of people. He's like somehow doing both at the same time, which is, I think, the very impressive thing. He does the thing I always tell my students not to do, which is to just quote like <laughs> right. two and a half pages of straight text from somebody. No, that, that is true. It's a different time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, uh, good. Like he yeah. does it well, you know, and especially maybe in this uh, chapter, I really loved some of the long quotations from people that probably I would only ever come across in a William James piece. Right. So shall we dive into yeah. what he actually says? So he gives, I think, a pretty good description of the properties of mystical experience. You know, he's not giving necessary and sufficient conditions, although the closest to necessary conditions are these first two properties, the first yeah. being ineffability. Um, so he says, I'm just quoting here, the handiest of the marks by which I classify a state of mind as mystical is negative. The subject of it immediately says that it defies expression, that no adequate report of its content can be given in words. It follows from this that its quality must be directly experienced. It cannot be imparted or transferred to others. In this peculiarity, mystical states are more like states of feeling than like states of intellect. I think it, maybe we should say from the get-go that James really is interested in the state of mind of the, the mystical experience, yeah. lest it seem like what he's talking about is some sort of like a actual treatise on religious doctrine or truth or anything like that. Like he's very much approaching this as a psychologist. So he cares about like what's going on when these people are actually experiencing this. Yeah. 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 Um, no, right. I think he does think th that there is something we can take from the fact that people have these experiences and the commonalities in the experience. But yeah, he is just describing the experience of these people in a purely yeah. descriptive way. It is at the beginning, not in any way trying yeah. to uh, judge whether these are true, you know, like insights into a deeper reality or, or just, you know, right. uh, mass hallucinations. So the first is ineffability. You have to experience it to know it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I, as someone who has never really had a mystical experience, I get the kind of feeling maybe that is being described here as like when you wake up from a dream that you have in memory and you quickly start losing the, what the dream was about. You have some vague sense of what you were feeling in the dream or like what your experience was like, but it's too hard to, to actually say it. Like you can't. Uh, so I, I, I don't know exactly interpret it that way because I think that he makes a distinction at some point or he quotes someone who makes a distinction between dreams and mystical experience. Dreams feel less substantial, less like you even know what it felt like. Whereas mystical experience is like, no, I have a sense of what it felt like. I just can't share 
uh, or give you a sense of what that experience was like. But I still have echoes, at least, of what that experience was like. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In, in my example, I was conflating the fleeting memory of the dream from the uh, the feeling that m- you might not be able to describe without the content of the dream. But I think you're right. Like, I think that a mystical experience is is on more certain grounds. Like, you when you escape it, it's not like you don't remember having it. You just can't communicate it. And even if you're in the middle of it, presumably it would be something that would right. be very hard to yeah. articulate because concepts are not up to the tasks, you know, yeah. like words or and languages. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So then the second quali- uh, property is this noetic quality. Although similar to states of feeling, mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are states of insight into depth of truth, unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, all articulate, all inarticulate as they remain. And as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for after time. Yeah. I love that curious sense of authority for after time, yeah. where it's like, has some force uh on on you but because you can't communicate it right makes it hard i was going to ask you if you'd ever had uh a mystical experience i was going to ask you the same i don't i don't think anything that i've had can properly be called a mystical experience but i've always wanted one (laughs) and yet you won't take like mushrooms or well because like edibles we can we'll get to that you know when when James talks about the inducing yeah. it through drugs through the, the like anesthetic like method mm-hmm. or something yeah, yeah um i don't want that kind you yeah. know like i want i want the i i want the divinity to touch me without me having imbibed yeah. you know i definitely feel like there are times through meditation and even sometimes outside of taking a walk where i have something that reflects some of what he's talking about here, especially that idea that, oh, this is the real thing. And the thing that I think is real is like actually just in the way. Uh, It's obstructing uh, this real perception, like the piercing the veil for just a glimpse of it, you know? And I have a way of trying to understand that through meditative practice, which is like all about preparing yourself to um, maybe experience this, but also just trying to make some sense of what you're experiencing. But prior to that or separate from that, I feel like there have been a couple times, two or three times in my life where it's crept up on me in a way that is completely divorced from any kind of practice or even any kind of drug because I was not, I hadn't taken any drug for these periods. Uh, So there was one time when I was like taking a hike in Yellowstone and it was by a lake and all of a sudden I just got this flooded feeling of like a kind of transcendence and a kind of, yeah, that kind of obliteration of self and this insight into something it's not different from what actually is, but it's a like a more accurate perception of what it all is. And then there were, it's really just three times in my whole life. There, there was this time in a Romanian church, just this church off the road that my brother and I uh, stopped in and went in. And like, I remember, like I can picture myself in the church and all of a sudden being like, wow, what's this? You know, like there's the silence and the, yeah, I don't know. What was it like a was. cathedral? 
yeah, but it was very small. It mm. was like probably like the size of, you know, like a t- three bedroom, two bathroom bungalow or something like that. Right. Um, maybe a little bigger than that, but not much. And it was, uh, yeah, that whole trip was, had a mystical quality actually <laughs> to it. But yeah, like it's, it's amazing that I can count on one hand, you know, again, separate and independent of like meditation stuff where it was just like something completely different from how I normally experience the world. Yeah. So I, I guess I've had, um, feelings of awe and even bliss and euphoria, um, out in nature and uh like we're on a run which is probably mixed in with whatever chemically is happening when i'm running and i remember being at a funeral once and having this is like i must have been in high school or early college and feeling as if everybody i can't describe it well it was this feeling of love in the room for the person who had died yeah. like i swore i felt it and i thought I remember because this time I still believed in God. I remember thinking, oh, is this like a God? Like, is this God? You know, (laughs) but it was a it was a pretty strong feeling of of there just being a room full of love. That's interesting. Felt like a thing. Right. Rather than just an intellectual uh, acknowledgement that people loved her. Right. It was like uh, like he says, it was a state of feeling more than a state of intellect. You know, like you're sensing things in a different way than you normally do. Yeah. And so that I think there's a good segue into the third, uh, which he says are, he says, for the first two, he says, these two characters will entitle any state to be called mystical in the sense in which I use the word. Two other qualities are less sharply marked, but are usually found. These are, number three, transiency. Mystical states cannot be sustained for long, except in rare instances, half an hour or at most an hour or two seems to be the limit beyond which they fade into the light of common day, which seems right. Like there's, totally. there's no, and it it also seems like if it if it did last long, then it would cease to be mystic. It would just be your normal experience. Yeah, it also seems like so. This is something I can say from like meditative experiences. It feels like you get like ejected from it, and, mm. and then it also feels like your thoughts are trying to pull you back out of it. And thoughts, especially because they're trying to judge the experience or trying to interpret it, are like pulling you back down into your normal way of seeing yeah, the world. Here, uh, I think his example from later on in the chapter of the guy who was apparently in surgery because he was like on chloroform mm-hmm. um, and just was having like one of these experiences where he felt like this union with God or something. And as he was coming out of the the anesthetic the chloroform he starts he's he doesn't want to leave he thought he might have died yeah um, and he doesn't want to leave and so as he realizes he's getting pulled back into like normal reality he says i suddenly leapt to my feet on the chair where i was sitting and shrieked out it is too horrible it is too horrible it is too horrible meaning that i could not bear this disillusionment then i flung myself on the ground and at last awoke covered with blood calling to the two surgeons who were frightened why did you not kill me why would you not let me die <laughs> poor surgeons i know they're like <laughs> look you came in here Buddy, we you asked done. us to do this <laughs> uh, yeah uh, so the last one yeah passivity this is an interesting one cuz I, I admit i hadn't really thought about it um but 
so passivity, although the oncoming of mystical states may be facilitated by preliminary voluntary operations, like doing shrooms, as by fixing the attention or going through certain bodily performances or in other ways which manuals of mysticism prescribe, yet when the characteristic sort of consciousness once has set in, the mystic feels as if his own will were in abeyance and indeed sometimes as if he were grasped and held by a superior power. Did you feel that? Uh, well, like in those uh, two instances that I described, I felt it. It just came upon me. It wasn't. I was just taking a hike or I was just going into this ch church to check it out. And then all of a sudden it was like going to Scooby-Doo or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the best uh, analogy. but It's ineffable. Um, it's ineffable. No, it's no ineffable. one will blame you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I will say that um, it's just inevitable that I'm going to talk about meditation stuff a little bit through this but one of the sure ways to bring on these kinds of experiences is to stop trying it's because it's not something that you can do it's not something that effort can bring you and in fact effort is in the way and right. so when you it now there is a little effort in making your body and your mind relax a little bit, but there does seem to be something about the, you're not reaching for this. You, it's not something that you can bring about to yourself directly. Um, even if you're prepping yourself for it to be brought about, yeah. uh, it's going to come when it's going to come. And, and you trying to hurry that up is just going to delay it. Right. It does remind me a little bit of Piranesi when they're trying to get to the other world. Yeah. yeah. Like, like they have different ways of doing it. Like one guy can just do it by like remembering what it was to be a child, but the other guy has to go through this elaborate ritual. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the idea is that the, the other guy is a little bit more advanced at this. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence aren't sales and, um, and knows how to just kind of let it more wash over him than uh, start chanting a bunch of things. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what I one of the things that I like about this chapter is that that kind of it isn't tied that much to any religion or like it really is this is what kind of what I meant that he's tackling it as a psychologist because he goes through a bunch of different examples and none of them are really tied to any religious tradition um, and some of them aren't at all tied to any religious tradition right and and so he he says the structure of my examples are kind of gonna move from like not religious at all all the way to like deeply religious. Um, because the commonalities of a lot of those experiences are interesting, interesting to science. The fact that you have all these people across thousands of years from very different traditions, that there's some common aspects to this kind of experience is of scientific interest. You can just look at it that way, but yeah. you don't have to only look at it that way. But yeah. you can. Yeah. I don't know. Should we dive into what, because one of the big commonalities that at least is unifying in this chapter is that these experiences, and, and I guess here's where I will even say it's, it's surprising to me that the mystical experiences described by so many different people, um, whether it's just like the romantic poets or like Sufi mystics or whatever, that they involve something like the breakdown of the self or like some mm -hmm. some insight that that everything is one right um yeah and i think the obliter the breakdown of self obliteration of self is in common across all these different uh traditions and experiences whether they have to be one 
that might depend more. But even in like uh, kind of more dualistic Christian traditions and stuff like that, you do still get, you're right, this kind of, it's all God's love, like yeah. in the end. And we're all just reflections of that in some different, in different ways. You know, there is a, if, if you'll permit me a bit of, of delving into the, the theology that I was raised in and just Christian theology in general, there is something that is very threatening to a lot of Christianity about these kinds of experiences. And I think that in the religion that I was raised in, we would have been taught to be very suspicious of, of experiences like this for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, if you can't, if the experience is so subjective and ineffable that you can't share it with other people, then it's just suspicious. Like you just don't know whether to believe it or not. Right. So there's this kind of just built in suspicion. Like if you can't, if you can't evaluate the truth of whatever it is that you're saying. Suspicious in the way that it might be just you're crazy or that no, it's the it devil. Might be, it's the devil at worst. At, at best, it is um, not truly getting you to God because um, if the only authority that tells me that you, you had an insight and the only authority is your particular experience, then like, you know, what am I to make of that? Like, it could, yeah. how do I know that it's not actually leading me astray, leading me away from God? But two, there is. I don't know to what extent this is true, maybe in the other monotheistic religions, but there is almost a deep heresy at the bottom of it all, which is that either this is all an illusion and I don't really exist as an individual self, but even more dangerous, what some mystics go, like where it takes them is that when I say we're all one, when I say like some version of monism, that everything is one, I mean that the divinity exists in me. Right. And that is like real bad. <laughs> so much so that a lot of mystics, I think, have had to hide that this is where their thoughts took them or, or risk getting like put to death. But isn't like, this is what I don't fully get about Christianity. Don't you have built in some idea that we are Christ? You know, you eat the wafer. Is that just Catholicism or? Uh... You, you eat the wafer to take part in, in this, like to, to, to remember the death of Christ. But any hint that you might have godness in you is so, right. so contrary to the shitty way that you're supposed to feel like where God is the perfect <laughs> right. one and, uh, and you are separated from God and God is, is uh, the authority and he's the one who's going to bring you to his grace. Like we are right. a little piece of shit. And right. to, to even think, I mean, I'm sorry, Christian, like I'm sure there are a lot of Christian people who don't believe so this. Sorry, but, Christian. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the Catholic notion of original sin um, is one of your separateness from God is a huge part of the theology. Yeah. Um, so to, to even hint that you might be one with God is you're essentially claiming divinity in a way that only Jesus ought to be allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be viewed in a way that undermines the authority, certainly of any clergy. Yes, and, exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and and then maybe even God. And maybe God, right. But God because, itself. yeah, but because, yeah, be, yeah, those two are hard to distinguish in real life. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I feel like we... When we talked about Tolstoy and the last part of that Tolstoy memoir confession, it's yeah. uh, we got that his dissatisfaction with uh, more organized forms of Christianity was that it 
denied the divinity, the potential divinity of every person. Yeah, 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 which is... In some ways, just the Protestant Reformation, the thought that you could get to God, just you, like through through prayer yeah. and worship and reading scripture on your own, was already a heresy. Yeah. So the thought that you might be able to, to achieve insight or oneness with God independent of any of this stuff, like, is yeah. even more dangerous, let alone that you might be saying that you're one with God. Um, so some of the people that he talks about here, like Meister Eckhart, a German mystic, yeah, they were arrested. Like he was arrested and was going to be put to death for this like kind of heresy, but he just died of old age before he <laughs> before they were able to do that. Do you think Jeffrey Epstein is still alive? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. But you know, somebody's got to be driving those black cars in your neighborhood. <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> no, they're white. That's even creepier. Should we talk about some of the quotes? Like this J. A. Simmons quote. Uh, yeah, there's a big description that I thought it's, it's relates to what you were saying before about the obliteration of self. And it's <laughs> a really good description. So he says, one reason why I disliked this kind of trance was that I could not describe it to myself. I cannot even now find words to render it intelligible. It consisted in a, I like that he says that and then goes on to give a pretty good description. <laughs> there, <laughs> there is a paradoxical a, nature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a gradual but swiftly progressive obliteration of space-time sensation and the multitudinous of factors of experience, which we seem to qualify what we are pleased to call ourself. Yeah. In proportion as these conditions of ordinary consciousness were subtracted, the sense of an underlying or essential consciousness acquired intensity. That is, uh, that, that I feel like is, is so meaningful, that part. Like, you lose the ordinary consciousness, and in proportion that you do that, that sense of something like a ground, a uh, something beneath it all, becomes more vivid and mm. it is in exact proportion to you dropping the other ways that you normally uh interpret the world i think that's like a beautiful articulation of uh at least how i understand these things okay say more because when it says um th that there is a sense of an underlying or essential uh, essential consciousness um that to me sounds creepy like there was something there's something there all along that you've you've become part of like what what is that like well so actually the part of it that i'm fixated on is in proportion as the, the conditions of ordinary consciousness are subtracted mm -hmm. so the simplest way of trying to describe it is to say that you know normally you it seems like you're viewing things with your eyes and you're this little thing behind your head behind the eyes and as that starts to drop away and you know, I don't think we have that as much with hearing, actually. Um, so now seeing becomes more like hearing where it's just kind of all around you. And mm. um, it's like, okay, now there's something, there's this uh, underlying, I don't know, people sometimes call it the ground of being, but it could. All, I think people also describe it as emptiness, context of uh, experience there's something that makes possible all this other stuff that we don't 
that, that we're not in touch with. We're in touch with the content of it, and we often think that that's all there is. But as the that stuff drops away, you start to sense this other thing that makes all that possible. Hmm. And that's the best I can do, I think. Yeah. But as it says, it just immediately comes back. The self will drag you back into right. it. And it's like he says, it breaks the bubble. I have a genuine question. It's going to seem like a... Um like some sort of objection maybe, but it's not really. Why does it seem like you've pierced the veil to the real reality? And like, why is it more real than the self? Like, I feel like the fact that the self is always with us and pops back so easily might just be like, well, yeah, that's the actual thing. Like what you were in, you were in another state of, of illusion that was. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just purely what James says. It's a feeling. It's like... Um, when you go back into your normal thought patterns and habits and stuff like that and the way and perceptions, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as, as real or it doesn't feel as like foundational as the other thing does. And so it is just a feeling that's, uh, as James says, like, I don't even know if I believe it, but like. I certainly wouldn't expect anybody else to believe it who wasn't experiencing it in the way that I'm experiencing it. But I do think it is a uh, a kind of feeling. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like you're, it's not that you feel like you are understanding what is actually real, at least not for me, even close. It's that you at least see that there's something there. It's like you get a glimpse out into something briefly and you don't know what it is um, and certainly not how you could describe it, but you, it's, it feels like it's, it's there. And what if when um, you achieved those states, what you actually saw was like a monster? (laughs) (laughs) People say that, like you get further along and you get like really like, you know, terrified. It's an abyss. I don't know. You know? Uh, Yeah. Well, I'm ready for that monster. I'll fuck that monster up. I'll get, I'll throw it a cookie. Don't they all like cookies? What you should really do is the you can't see me gesture to its face. <laughs> I also like that it's like, did you interpret it that William James did do uh, nitrous? nitrous oxide? Oh, yeah, he did. And I think we've yeah. even talked about it. He wrote an essay on the effects of nitrous oxide where he actually says he summarizes it here. But he basically had heard that people have like these insights uh, when under the influence of nitrous. So he does it. And he really just does. He's he's trying his best to explain it, and what he comes up with is like, no, no, no there's something deeply right about the Hegel's like synthesis antithesis. Oh yeah, like, I have this thesis actually. Antithesis. Yeah. <laughs> actually, this is a much better answer to your question than what I just tried to stumble through. One conclusion was forced upon my mind at that time, and my impression of its truth has ever since remained unshaken. It is that our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness, as we call it the thing that gets you all hard, (laughs) uh, is but one special type of consciousness while all of it parted from it by the flimsiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. How to regard them is the question. Again, I think he's still being descriptive here. It's that, okay, there's my normal conscious, 
consciousness, but then there's this other kind of consciousness. And you can't deny that there's something significant about that. And then he says, as you alluded to, I feel as if it must mean something, something like what the Hegelian philosophy (laughs) means, if one could only lay hold of it more clearly. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. To me, the living sense of its reality only comes in the artificial mystic state of mind. <laughs> the Hegelian, yeah, yeah, and he's quoting Jesus there too. With the, those who have ears, let him hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's so funny. Yeah, I, I think it's hilarious. Which I couldn't tell whether um, he thinks that the chemical ways of achieving the state are le- as legitimate. It seems like he really he did have what he thinks of as insight in his his anesthetic revelation. Yeah, but why wouldn't they really? You know, like there's no reason to think that meditation or, you know, uh, various Christian or Jewish mystic rituals or whatever are like the legitimate path. And this isn't it just might be something. Um, Let's just say that there is this these other states of consciousness that are inaccessible to us normally. Like, why couldn't it be drugs that get this is the whole psilocybin uh, kind of theory which is annoying normally just because of the people that i think do (laughs) like are are all excited about it but actually seems like it might be right you know i have a vague vague recollection that we talked about something like this but it does seem like um (laughs) like there's the natty route like (laughs) like you got to be a natural uh, there is some value placed on achieving this through the old-fashioned way. Like, you can't just take steroids and... <laughs> right. You can't take Viagra. And, like... <laughs> yeah. It's not the authentic you. Um, but I don't think... I don't think there's... Your authentic spiritual boner. <laughs> exactly. This is basically like if you run out of Viagra, you can't fuck anymore. Like if you, but if you, you know, through meditation, can maintain it. Uh like there is something maybe it was when Sam was on we were talking about this like um if you have to work years and years to get to this spot in your meditation um i can see why you might think that just popping some lsd and feeling the same thing isn't the same thing because there's something there's something that you've worked on about yourself that got you there I just think that reflects a kind of Protestant, like you have to work for it for it to be valuable. Yeah, but I mean it more like an authentic experience, like where it's there's an external way and an internal way. But why is it more authentic if it's external rather than internal? I don't think that there's any real argument to be made there. I just it's like maybe somebody would say, like, sure, you can get pleasure from cocaine. But is it the same as the pleasure you get from a human relationship? Like one of them might reflect something deeper. Yeah. And I actually think that's probably true. Like I, I I've only done tragically since, you know, starting serious meditative practice. I've only done uh hallucinogenics when i haven't had enough of them <laughs> last night being one example actually <laughs> i told you that for the podcast i was gonna take these this leftover like bit of mushroom that i had um and it didn't unfortunately really do anything but uh other times other times that i've done it it was like it brought you to a place for free that you would normally have to spend a bit of time getting there yeah. but 
I think you only understand it. I had done a good amount of mushrooms and LSD before any of this and never had those kinds of right. experiences. So I think the practice maybe alerts you to what it is that you're experiencing and how to understand it. And then the LSD just gets you there. You don't have to uh, sit for 25 minutes to to feel it. You just get it for free yeah. in that way. And that's fine, I think. Yeah. yeah. But there is something there about the, it's alerting you to like what to look for or how mm -hmm. to even, how to, I don't know, make sense of the experience. And, and I think like, suppose that there is just that the various like true, true mystics that have lived throughout time, um, that, who have like visions regularly or whatever. Um, I told you I was reading this book by William Blake uh, about William Blake and, and he yeah. just since he was a kid, he was seeing shit. So maybe there's something wrong with all of their brains like, or, or different. Um, but there is something about the, the traditions, like whatever it is, whether it's you're a Sufi and it's from Islam or, or Christian tradition or Buddhist that, or, or like the native Americans who do ayahuasca or peyote or whatever, um, where the use of 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 the drug is made valuable because of the knowledge and wisdom that mm -hmm. you gain from the tradition or in your case the practice right where like uh maybe brains are kind of broken but there is a way in which they've been broken similarly in other people that have given the sort of now it could all be bullshit but but i guess what i'm saying is that it seems totally. like it's more yeah. valuable to have um had some some structure uh, to make sense of the experience and not just be, I suspect that some people who are devoid of any of the, the structure of religion or whatever meditation would just be put in like the, the loony bin. Or kind of just perplexed by it. Like, yeah. I, like I felt, you know, in Yellowstone, it's like, oh, this is new and weird. Right. And then like, but it has no way of really trying to. But what's interesting about what you're saying, I think you're totally right. It gives you a framework. What did you say? You said it gives you a structure. Yeah. yeah. Like it gives you a structure that will help make these experiences more vivid. And I think that's totally right. At the same time, and I think this is true not just for Buddhist practice, but for a lot of these things. Concepts <clears throat> and structures are in some ways kind of the enemy. Like they're the things that are uh, blocking, you know, obstacles to the experience. And so it seems contradictory that you need a structure, which I agree with, but also that conceptual thought and yeah. certainly any kind of interpretive framework that you could describe is is not helpful. Maybe one of the advantages is just in being able to try to communicate what what happened to you. Because if you can say like, oh, you know how like we believe in the Trinity and like there's this Holy Ghost thing or something, it's kind of like you're you know you're enveloped in the Holy Ghost. Or I don't know whatever it is. Like maybe it's maybe it's not so much that it is the source of insight or that it's changing the insight, but it's just giving people a way to in at a meta level either think about what they've been experiencing or maybe just a better way to hide <laughs> like if you're if you're in some gnarly like christian community and you're not allowed to be having these experiences of like dissolution of yeah. self 
you can kind of couch it in the terms of your of your religion and and maybe get away with communicating some of these truths without getting into too much trouble but even as a personal thing like i do think it helps you identify yeah what it is that you're uh feeling and how to connect it with maybe other kinds of states um so yeah we should um, read the lf um or discuss the lf the Borges story i don't know what okay. you remember of it but um there it was very much like i could relate to it so much so so he finds this lf which is a, a little small dot in somebody's house that allows you to see all of reality literally all of reality without any confusion yeah. but in this dot and uh out of spite he tells the guy who who who's like really he found it in his house and who's like really into like experiencing this and writing this long poem about it out of spite he just he tells him like no it's nothing i didn't see anything and like has the house torn down that is that there is something about the the uh pull of reason that uh, rejects reject yeah. even even after experiencing it rejected it uh and that's just how i feel i think that i am the that. dogmatic <laughs> yeah rationalist at that point it's like, yeah it was, you're it was just you're the rejecting drugs, the most real thing <laughs> that's ever happened to you yeah. maybe maybe uh, actually speaking of this so uh one thing that he says quoting rm buck i love these guys names yeah. there's They're such fake names <laughs> yeah, it's like porn names. <laughs> to this is added a state of moral exaltation, an indescribable feeling of elevation, elation, and joyousness, a quickening of the moral sense, which is fully as striking and more important than is the enhanced intellectual power. And then he says, with these comes what may be called a sense of immortality, that should perk your interest, <laughs> a consciousness of eternal life, not a conviction that he shall have this, but the consciousness that he has it already. I like that. And I do think, like, I don't feel, I don't know about exaltation or <laughs> elevation or elation, but there is a kind of lightness and joyousness that you get, and especially maybe lightness. Yeah that comes with this in contrast to the feelings of being like smacked down with this overwhelmed by it there like i think this gets at another aspect of at least how i understand some of these experiences that it's a very light and um yeah like you feel freeing, airy freeing, freeing liberating yeah yeah, yeah. it would be nice to feel i do feel in some of these descriptions i feel like uh, anxiety and dread are the opposite of the emotions that, that are mm -hmm. being reported. A anything else you want to talk about, about the states themselves before we maybe conclude with a discussion of the epistemology? I don't think so. Uh, yeah. uh, th actually, there's this one thing that, before we get to that. This thing about the negation, oh, yeah. you know, how he says, so he says there's these two properties. One is monism and the other is a kind of optimism. Um, and it's a feeling that you're embracing things. You're saying yes to things. But then he quotes, I think, Upanishad, uh, Upanishads. Yeah. Uh, he, the self, the Atman, is to be described by no, no, only, say the Upanishads, although it seems on the surface to be a no function, is a denial made on behalf of a deeper yes. 
things. Yeah. I love that. It's very well described. And I think it's like, like it gets at something too, you know, like the negation is a big part of what it is that you're trying to do, but it is on behalf of a deeper yes. Yeah. yeah it's super cool. It, it, I do remember, um, uh, I don't know where I studied it, but, uh, about this this view of like what's called negative theology that God is so great that you you can only say things that He's not, um, and so you should never say anything other than what He's not. Um, and it's like a deep tradition of that. But at some point, it might not make sense because you still seem to be saying something. But that's just the way. That's the paradoxical nature of it. Um, that it's the yin yang like yeah. the, like the negation has to make the thing positive and that's also in common to a lot of re religions you need to know suffering in order to know joy you know you need to right that's uh, how, that's the the what what james says is like like that seems like a, a novel connection to me that there is something about this feeling of negating to saying the truth by negating that he equated to like the the negation of your of your will like the ascetic lifestyle yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then he quotes Hegel in German. <laughs> like Hegel in his logic, mystics journey towards the positive pole of truth only by the... Uh, Der absolute Negativität. <laughs> I got to say it angrily. <laughs> Juden. <laughs> Gott, Negativat Juden. Gott ist ein lauter Nicht. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and this, like, you know, we've talked about this um, before when talking about meditation, but there is something about just the pounding on your rational faculties that paradoxes um, provide, uh, yeah. which seems to yes. be important. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's like Zen koans yeah. sometimes. Which is cool because and... James obviously would have no idea about Zen at this point, right? I don't think he's, I mean, he's certainly seems to know about Buddhist uh, philosophy, but yeah, maybe Zen hasn't made its way specifically. Hmm. Um, and he doesn't talk about the sort of role of those things. Right. But yeah, like Zen is all about that. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness is a big Zen idea and very much in line with this kind of thing. And then the Plotinus, he says, uh, in the vision of God, says Plotinus, he's the Neoplatonist, one of the big Neoplatonists, what sees is not our reason, but something prior and superior hmm. to our reason. That must have given you. Did you just like <laughs> immediately just slam your computer down and like pour a bunch of uh, gasoline on it and light it on fire? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, I just skipped over it. <laughs> prior and superior to reason. That's not possible. Is it like a better kind of reason? <laughs> it's like a really good reason? <laughs> 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 it's like calculus <laughs> but this is like think like I, what I've been saying it's this idea that reason is necessarily employs concepts and this is something prior to concepts yeah. that you're uh, that you have a brief window to or you're crazy one of the <laughs> right <laughs> yeah I'm I'm I, like I totally am how should I put it it, there is the universe wasn't designed with concepts in mind so i i'm okay with the thought that like what concepts are doing for us is are allowing our minds to wrap around reality in a way that's kind of useful and 
Um, but there is nothing in the universe that that's like fundamental reality will organize itself around the concepts that your brain evolved on to like, and then your language evolved into like, no. So, so I get that there, that if, if you were to come in contact with whatever underlying reality is that concepts wouldn't work, like, why would they? It's just like, I would fall back on the, like the negation parts where you're like, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Yeah, and then the only f- further step on your path towards mysticism, which I do think there's like a little Christian mystic just waiting to break out in in your breast. Uh, it's, it's that the concepts are useful, but then they also might close us off at times to uh, a more holistic understanding that would actually also perhaps be more accurate. Yeah. That's in that last part is what I'm also going to say, which is like, I have zero reason to believe that any of this stuff would be accurate. Like, why would our brains be able to like even get there? You know? Yeah. That's a fair question (laughs) for someone in the thrall of conceptual thought. (laughs) Uh, uh, So let's talk about, let's conclude because we got to wrap up, but with the, uh, his epistemological takeaway, which is actually fairly short. Yeah. I, I I really liked it. I mean, okay. It's a little wishy-washy. Because he says so, the thing and he says the opposite thing. <laughs> negation. Uh, what is it? The yeah, it's a synthesis. Methode de absolute. <laughs> nine, nine, nine. Um, <laughs> he says, my next task is to inquire whether we can invoke it as authoritative. We're talking about mystical experience. Does it furnish any warrant for the truth of the twice-bornness and supernaturality and pantheism which it favors? I must give my answer to this question as concisely as I can. In brief, my answer is this. And I will divide it into three parts. Talk about who can't let go. <laughs> this is a three-part answer. Okay, one, mystical states, when well-developed, usually are and have the right to be absolutely authoritative over the individuals to whom they come. Do you agree with that? Um, it, dep- it depends what he means, but I think that there's part there's like a way in which it's just has to be true. Like it's if you had a feeling... Uh, like who's to argue against that? Like yeah. if that, you know, that's it because it's more real than any other yeah, right. way. It feels to you more real than anything else. Yeah. Like, you know, from your science textbooks or from <laughs> right. uh, just your normal way of experiencing the world. Right. So number two, no authority emanates from them, which should make it a duty for those who stand outside of them to accept their revelations uncritically. Um, I would even just say, remove the uncritically. Like there's nothing in somebody else's experience that should have authority over mine. In isolation, no, but maybe in conjunction with a lot of other ones. I mean, and similarly, you could be a little more skeptical about number one. If you thought, like if you had a way to even kind of explain away your own experience, then maybe even if it felt more real, you would feel like you had some reason to doubt it. Here, I think maybe... You know, like if you're just talking about one person's experience, there's no reason if you say you have it for me to think that, oh, there's something there that's worth looking into. But if a lot of people are doing it and it's part of this big tradition or or there's overlapping traditions. Which he'll get to, which I think we I think we read his conclusions, probably emphasizing the different things that he said, which is why I think it's a little wishy washy because he gets to that. Um, Mm. But I even think, you know. The number, the first one, even if say you had like gotten knocked in the head um, and had an experience that felt so real to you that um, 
right. and it was just because you got like a you know a railroad tamping iron through your frontal lobe or whatever. Um, I still think there is nothing wrong with you saying, "Oh, it could have happened because of like this brain damage," but I still felt like the most real thing I've ever felt. Like I'd be, yeah. And so I like that brain damage for whatever reason gave me insight yeah, into like unlocked. Like, yeah. Okay. Then finally, number three, they break down the authority of the non-mystical or rationalistic consciousness based upon the understanding and the senses alone. They show it to be only one kind of consciousness. They open out the possibility of other orders of truth in which, so far as anything in us vitally responds to them, we may freely continue to have faith. Do you resist that? The, that they break down the authority? Well, this is where I want to read what he writes about number two, um, because I find this pretty convincing. So he says, but now I proceed to add that mystics have no right to claim that we ought to accept the deliverance of their peculiar experiences if we are ourselves outsiders and feel no private call thereto. Um, and then he says, uh, the utmost they can ever ask us in this life is to admit that they establish a presumption. They form a consensus and have an unequivocal outcome. And it would be odd, mystics might say, if such a unanimous type of experience should be should prove to be altogether wrong, which is just Tamler. This is just your argument. Yes, at, this is my argument for ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> at bottom, <laughs> however, this would only be an appeal to numbers, like the appeal of rationalism the other way, and the appeal to numbers has no logical force. If we, acknowledges, if we acknowledge it, it is for suggestive, not for logical reasons. We follow the majority because to do so suits our life. But then he goes on to say, but look, I've even oversold that these are all similar experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, because I've been trying to abstract into this similar thing. And then he goes to, to show how like what he calls mystical experiences come in so many different forms that it might not make sense to say that there are real commonalities. As he says, it's been both ascetic and antinomially self-indulgent within the Christian church. It's dualistic in Sankhya and monistic in Vedanta philosophy. I called it pantheistic, but the great Spanish mystics are anything but pantheists. They are with few exceptions, non-metaphysical minds for whom the category of personality is absolute. Yeah. yeah. So I take it that this is a argument against, well, you could interpret it both ways, a an argument against more doctrinaire takeaways from the existence of these experiences. But he, he does say, I repeat once more, the existence of mystical states af absolutely overthrows the pretension of non-mystical states to be the sole and ultimate dictators of what we may believe. And that idea of them establishing, they establish a presumption. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a hypothesis that, that maybe there's more to heaven and earth than your philosophy will allow. And I think like that's where he lands, which is where I feel like I am too, is uh, there, there might be like this other dimension of reality and our current methods might not be able to discern it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe like it's, it's more through these kinds of experiences that we can get a glimpse at it, but not through running a bunch of experiments or whatever. But, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think yeah. he's also struggling with himself here because he is saying like, I have the same problem of skepticism with all of these separate experiences as well, where, cause he, he goes into the fact that um, he says, open any one of these and you will find abundant cases in which mystical ideas are cited as characteristic symptoms of enfeebled or deluded state of minds. The same sense of ineffable importance in the smallest events, the same texts and words coming with new meanings, the same voices and visions and leadings and missions, the same controlling by extraneous powers. Only this time the emotion is pessimistic. Instead of consolations, we have desolations. The meanings are mm -hmm. dreadful and the powers are enemies to life. 
It is evident that from the point of view of their psychological mechanism, the classic mysticism and these lower mysticisms spring from the same mental level, from that great subliminal or transmarginal region of which science is beginning to admit the existence, but which, uh, but of which so little is really known. So I think I just turned the skepticism on this as well. And I'm just like, well, I don't know. That's why I think that the, the main point is that if you've experienced it, it has authority over you. But uh, in reading the record of other people's mystical experiences, I'm kind of left at the same. Like, well, what's like? I don't, I don't see any overwhelming body of evidence that would lead me to 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 trust these as a general category of insight. Sure, and James would be would believe that you have a reasonable position. I think as someone who has not experienced these states and who is being maybe sufficiently open-minded, maybe not, about the existence of them, but wants a little more than just J.K. not J.K. Simmons, J.A. <laughs> Simmons uh, or R.M. Buck, like, describing uh, the trances. I'll have you know in. that actually in grad school, I read James's thing on nitrous oxide, and I did nitrous oxide plenty of times, and I never had a Hegelian thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I was disappointed. But I think, you know, where James is and where I am, maybe as someone who feels like I've experienced I I've experienced more of, you know, in common with some of these reports than than you feel like you have. It it puts you in the epistemic position of, okay, there might be something here. I'm not saying there is, but there might be. And if there is, it's not going to be something that we get in the like Hedron Collider or something that, that tells us about it. It's not that kind of thing. It is a different kind How do you know, of Tyler? conscious. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe then, you'll yeah. see, you'll see the God particles floating around. Uh, I think like this is where, where he says they offer us hypotheses, hypotheses which we may voluntarily ignore, which you voluntarily <laughs> ignore, but which as thinkers we cannot possibly upset. The supernaturalism and optimism to which they would persuade us may, interpreted in one way or another, be after all the truest insights into the meaning of this life. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Maybe. There is the part of me wants to just accept that this is a category of experience that might give some meaning and insight into life and existence. But I don't think it overturns the value of rationality at all. Like, I think it's just a, and this is like, it just, yeah. I don't think it's supposed to overturn the value of rationality. It's just supposed to point out maybe certain limits to rationality. Yeah. Which have been pointed out by, you know, by, reasoners like <laughs> <laughs> okay you win reason wins <laughs> i mean i i just i am um i think just gonna be always deeply suspicious about insight that comes from somebody's idiosyncratic experience um my experience of of letting a reason guide my life is just as valuable how's that <laughs> <laughs> My lived experience uh, is that reason, <laughs> reason is, is all. Uh, it's so funny that, like, it really is temperamental at this point yeah, between the two of us. <laughs> because I, I, like, I, as often happens, I don't, like, as you say, like, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And, like, I, totally. it's not, yeah. I'm really not opposed to it. I, I just. Um, 
yeah, this, yeah, this is an internal. You have conflicting forces, like bad doing, like a kind of mythical battle within you. Yeah, right and I sometimes just want you to admit that yours is a battle too, since you obviously worship at the fountain of reason, or else we wouldn't have these kinds of conversations. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be. We, would, we wouldn't be able to. We'd just be we'd stuck just be like, like meditating and being like, "Did you see that? Did you see that? No, I think I saw it. I think I." <laughs> Uh, did you pierce? I think I pierced the veil. <laughs> what color was your veil? Uh, one thing, like just to the very last thing that we haven't mentioned that like a big James person would want us to is that his pragmatism peeks through in uh, some of this discussion. And at a certain point, he's kind of like, if you're at the point that maybe you're at or maybe even that I'm at where you're like, I don't know, but this is suggestive. This is something we can't uh fully deny like has to be explained somehow right at that point maybe the tiebreaker is just what's work is it doing for you yeah he says like uh the fruits what are the fruits of this mm -hmm. yeah and fair yeah you know like i do think the fruits of it um they're not it's not always easy to know what the fruits of it are for some people it is they're just like i couldn't go on like if i didn't have faith or something yeah. like i I, I couldn't go on living and relating to other people in the way that I do. But, you know, atheist agnostics like you and me, it's not totally clear what it's doing yeah. or what it would do to believe in this kind of non-denominational dimension of reality, you know, yeah. this uh, fairy world or whatever. But, but James might say, like, has it, has it uh, made you happier? Has it made you less less negative or less douchey or less angry? All of pro yeah. which it probably has in your case. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that Jen is more, my wife is more like you. She's pretty committed atheist and, you know, doesn't... Feel the need to entertain flights of fancy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But we were talking about how Omar, our dog, the, uh, the pit bull, we found on the uh, on like the one year anniversary of Tessa's death. He just happened. This like terrified, nervous dog just followed me and Charlie home for like 12 blocks. And, you know, what we had always said was Tess just said, OK, you're just wandering. You're a pit bull wandering <laughs> the streets of Houston. I'm going to find you a good home. Here, here you go. And I said to her just a couple nights ago, like because she brought it up again. I said, you know, it's, sometimes you talk about that like you actually believe it. And she's like. I kind of like I do, I think like I actually do. And I, but you don't believe anything else about the world that's consistent with that. And she's like, yeah, I know. But I kind of believe it, you know, and maybe that's that kind of prag the fruits of that right. are like that are or there are other dog just gave us a new one. Um uh -huh is uh, like it's it's funny the way that you, you don't it it can be more localized in terms of right <laughs> how mystical you want to be yeah. I, I look forward to jen founding her religion where there's just one story <laughs> it's just dogs getting other dogs dead dogs getting live dogs new homes. <laughs> i think that's a great story to end on okay I'm all right to. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.